0: Hello everybody. Welcome to the Rimfire Tactical podcast. I'm your host Chris from RimfireTactical.com and I'm glad you're here. Today we're going to talk about a subject that I love to talk about. It's one that is near and dear to my heart because the entire time I've been shooting I've heard this debate and I've heard it presented in so many different ways and so today, I'm going to give you my spin on it. What we're going to talk about today is optics. Rifle scopes. What exactly makes some rifle scopes so much better than others? And when I say better, better is a relative term. It's, it's all about what your particular view is. Um, but what makes certain rifle scopes better suited to different types of shooting than others? And also what makes a rifle scope cost 30 dollars, while another rifle scope costs 3,500 dollars. When I started shooting years ago, the term that I always heard used when it came to scopes for 22s was, just put something cheap on it. It's just a 22. And that's what a majority of shooters did, even though some of the better uh, known or I guess you could call them higher quality brands that existed back then. uh, loophold Schmidt and Bender, a lot of those different companies that are still around today and still some of the top brands in the industry. um, A lot of those companies, those brands did offer some form of a rimfire scope. But a majority of shooters were not willing to spend the type of money on scopes for their rimfire rifles back in those days because, again, it's just a 22. They're always referring to it as just a 22. It's just a 22 that you're going to take squirrel hunting. It's just a 22 that you're going to take. Uh, maybe groundhog hunting or rock chucks or maybe it's um, prairie dogs if you're out west. But again, it's always just a twenty two. One of the things that stands out in my mind is often whenever I go into a gun shop, whether it's in my local area or in any other part of the country, I will always walk through the used guns. And the reason I do that, well, there's actually a few. One of them is some of my favorite rifles. Um, My rimfire rifles especially are no longer in production. So the only time I'm going to find one of those in a gun shop is if it's there on consignment or if it's been traded in or sold to the store. Another reason I always like to walk through is I get a kick out of seeing the different optics that people have put on their rim fires. And when I say rim fires, I'm talking everything from your base model savages and Marlins all the way up to on shoots. um, some of the, um, the older Kimber rifles, which are near and dear to my heart. um, and a little bit of everything in between. If I could pick one scope that I see more than anything else on all those different brands. The scope that I most often see is a Tasco 3 to 9 power. uh, It's usually a 3 to 9 by 40 scope, something that at least when I was growing up was around a $35 to maybe $40 scope. And those scopes were at that time some of the models i believe were made in japan others where well, i'm sure were made in other parts of uh, the world but they were considered suitable to put on a 22 not so much because of the parallax um parallax being what at what distance the crosshairs should be in focus uh, they weren't really considered 22 scopes for that. They were typically considered, at least by the people that I knew, they were considered to be a 22 scope or a rimfire fire scope because maybe they were going to be put on a 22 Magnum. But they were considered a scope that was ideal for a rim fire because the theory was that they could not stand up to recoil from a center fire rifle without the crosshairs either shifting. Or uh, in some cases even breaking loose, um, but on a twenty-two because there's no real recoil, it should be fine. And as I said, I've seen those Tasco scopes, or Bushnell, or Simmons, uh, and there's nothing wrong with any of these brands that I'm mentioning. It's just what I've seen through the years: the the Bushnells, the Tascos, the Simmons, um, some of the brands that are uh, considered to be a cheaper uh cheaper scope lower maybe some people consider to be lower quality but that's the scopes that i would always see on these rifles and still do today still do and for the most part at least in the area that i grew up in even though i grew up in a family that loved to hunt and all of my father's friends loved to hunt Most of those guys very rarely ever shot targets. If they were going to go shoot, they were going out to line up, side in, zero, call it whatever you want. They were going to make sure that any rifle they had, they were going to make sure that the scope was zeroed and ready to go. So that when it was time to go squirrel hunting, they were good to go. When it was time to go, Deer hunting, they were good to go. If it was time to go groundhog hunting, again, they were good to go. There was never going to be a uh, time that they needed to grab a rifle out of the gun cabinet or out of the safe and go hunting, and that they were going to have to stop first to line up the scope. So that's really the only time that any targets were shot, was to make sure that the scope was adjusted so that they were on target without question. Well, if you fast forward about 30 years or so, in my, in the same area, now I see a lot of shooters that do go out and shoot more. And they go out and shoot just for entertainment. Whether they're shooting on paper, maybe they're shooting... Um, some steel gongs or, you know, just the, the soda can, the can of soup, whatever it may be, a lot of shooters now are shooting more than ever before. And to make it even more important to have good quality optics, a lot of those shooters, they're stretching what was considered the limits of the 22 long rifle years ago to a whole different, uh, element. Um, I've actually had people before who would argue with me and say that a 22 long rifle will not shoot 200 yards. Now those same people will all tell you that on the, the side of a box of 22 long rifle ammunition, there's a warning that says that that round will shoot, uh, and is deadly for one and a half miles. They know that that warning is on there, but they'll still argue and say that you can't shoot a 22 past 100 yards or 150 yards and definitely not past 200. Meanwhile, there are lots of people who are shooting their 22s out to 400, 500, 600, 800 yards or more and doing it with relative accuracy. The other thing that a lot of shooters are doing now that they did not do in the past which makes better quality optics so much more important is a lot of those shooters are shooting smaller targets now i'm not talking about bench rest Uh, rimfire bench rest is a totally different game Uh, i have a tremendous amount of respect for people who shoot that game because it is truly a game that takes an enormous amount of discipline to be able to go out and test different lots of ammo and shoot and shoot and shoot some more learning uh, the difference in a five mile an hour versus an eight mile an hour wind and what the difference will do or what that wind will do to the impact Uh, if if you have a gust go from five miles per hour to eight miles an hour there's so many different things in the bench rest world that uh, are kind of unique to them. But one of the great things about bench rest is there's been a tremendous amount of innovation through the years through bench rest, which has carried over into the rimfire ammunition, the optics, and the rifles that we enjoy today. When I'm talking about targets getting smaller, though, I'm talking about Matches being held where a stage in the match may have the shooters shooting a matchstick, a toothpick, maybe a playing card turned on its edge. They're shooting those. And the difference in being successful on that stage or unsuccessful is whether or not you're able to shoot those matchsticks into, or the toothpicks into, or cut the playing card in half, or at least hit it so that it's partially torn. And they're shooting those targets at 25 yards, maybe 50 yards. I have a lot of uh, friends locally, a group of shooters that go out once a week and shoot. And part of what they have started to do is to take the little dum dumb, dumb uh, lollipops, which have a, um, I guess the little lollipop, the top of it, that thing is probably about three quarters of an inch, somewhere between a half inch to three quarters of an inch in diameter. And they're shooting those at a um, hundred yards and they're not just shooting at them, they're shooting them taking the heads off those lollipops at a hundred yards with their 22 long rifles. And so clearly having scopes, which can not only uh, zoom enough to be able to identify the particular toothpick or playing card that you're shooting at, but also enough resolution to make sure that the crosshairs are on target and to be able to trust that when you adjust that scope one click which could be anything from an eighth of an inch or I'm sorry, an eighth of MOA or a quarter of MOA um, or maybe it's uh, 0.1 mil To know that when you adjust that optic, one click, two clicks, four clicks, however many clicks it happens to be for that particular scope you're shooting, to know that it's going to move the crosshairs the distance that you dialed. You know, going back to now 40 years ago when I was growing up, something that I always saw my father and every other shooter every one of his friends when we would go out to line up our deer rifles or our squirrel rifles or whatever, one of the most common pieces of equipment that was always out whenever we were shooting those rifles was a pocket knife. Back in those days, scopes all had friction adjustments, which meant that you would take either the end of a center fire rifle case or most commonly someone would take either a quarter or a nickel or maybe a dime or a penny out of their pocket and you would turn, there was a a groove slot in the top of the turret. You would take off the the turret caps and you would turn the, um, the dial either clockwise or counterclockwise, depending on who made your rifle, but there were no clicks that you could feel or clicks that you could hear. So you just had to look at it. And if you needed to move, that scope um roughly one inch um then you would move it from for example on those scopes maybe it was set on three and and it was between three and four so it's close enough to three and a half and you might have to move it if you're going to move it about uh you know roughly one inch at 100 yards even though one moa is 1.047 you would you would go ahead and just move it to roughly Uh, the middle between four and five. But again, it's just a smooth turn, nothing to click or to count clicks or anything like that. So it wasn't nearly as precise as the optics we have now. But going back to why the pocket knife was so, or was always included whenever you were sighting in scopes, is because every shooter, when they would adjust the scope, either up or down, left or right, once they were done, they would take that pocket knife and they would tap the scope on the turret that they had just adjusted. They would tap it several times. And when I asked as a as a kid why they would do that, they said, "Well, you have to understand these adjustments have a way of sticking." Meaning if we just moved the crosshairs enough that at 100 yards that scope should move 2 inches, It may be if we don't tap the scope, those crosshairs may stick and it may, you know, only move a half inch or maybe one inch. And then after the third or fifth or sixth round of that 270 or 243 or whatever caliber someone was shooting at that point, maybe the crosshairs will will, quote, break loose enough to actually move the other inch and a half or one inch but in either case they would tap those turrets to try to get the crosshairs to move where they actually were supposed to move well now you know (laughs) scope technology is as good as it has ever been and better Um, and what's such a big deal to a lot of folks now is they're taking the same scope that they would use on their center fire rifle, whether for deer hunting, or maybe it's, again, competition shooting, PRS style matches, um, whatever the case may be, a lot of shooters are using a rimfire rifle to replicate the look, but more importantly, the feel and the balance of their center fire guns and as do and when they're doing that they're looking to, to put a quality optic on because they have a great rifle scope on that rifle so that brings us to the reason why I love talking about scopes for rim fires years ago all scopes that I would ever see with the exception, or at least the ones that I would see available in stores. Um, there were always centerfire scopes. And like I said before, Loophole, in particular, they made some rimfire models, but those scopes were, heck, they were almost as expensive as a centerfire scope. And so uh, the thought process from the shooters that I knew was, hey, if I'm paying money like that, I'm not going to put it on, quote, just a twenty two. Again, you're going to hear a theme all throughout this podcast series. You're going to hear me talk about that that one little line that I've heard my entire life of it's just a 22. But, again, very few rimfire scopes. And the ones that were, uh, quote, rimfire scopes back then, they weren't even one-inch tubes. They were like a three-quarter or three-eighths-inch tubes. They were the little, little things that... Uh, (laughs) they were the ones that you would see for $10, uh, in a Walmart or a Kmart or something like that. Well, as rimfire rifles and ammunition have gotten so much better and as more and more shooters have come to realize the benefits of having a quality 22 long rifle trainer a lot of those same shooters have realized the benefits of having a scope either identical to the one that's on their center fires or one that's very close in design um, especially the reticle design Um, one that's also similar in how uh, the adjustments work for example if they have a mill scope on their center fire rifle They want to have a mil scope on their 22 trainer, not an MOA, because then they're talking different language for each rifle. So that leads us to where I am. And I see a lot of shooters now. A lot of shooters have realized that, especially if they're shooting in the NRL type matches or any PRS type matches, uh, a real good example, that's not NRL related, but similar In shooting styles, um, Voodoo has the Voodoo Rimfire series. And these are all um, PRS style uh, matches where the shooter may be shooting um, standing and leaning across a barricade. They may be shooting prone. They may be shooting while they're kneeling with the rifle rested over a pack or uh, across a, a bench or something like that. In some cases, the shooters know the distance to their target. In others, they're having to uh, use the reticle to figure out the distance. And they're shooting these matches regardless of what the weather's doing. Um, and, And that happens in every match, even in rimfire bench rest. When a match is taking place, shooters will shoot in the wind or in still conditions. But a lot of shooters at least at the the few uh, bench rest matches I've been to, a lot of them will tend to hold off on shooting for a bit, hoping for the wind to calm down. In the PRS style matches, you have a short time window to be able to get your five to 10 shots in on a stage. So you can't necessarily wait as long for that reason. a lot of the shooters have a reticle in their scope. That's going to have some hash marks, um, and, and they've already spent enough time shooting to know that, uh, you know, in a 10 mile an hour wind at this particular range, um, you know, we may have to hold um, 0.2 mil. We have to hold on the left edge of the plate, the right edge of the plate. We may have to hold a, a full mil if the wind is really strong. And for that reason, they're looking for that commonality between center fire and fire scopes. With a lot of rifle scopes that are designed for center fires, even today, it's becoming more common that you'll have scopes with adjustable objective or uh, with the side focus. That, that is very common now, but there's still some scopes out there that don't have that. And those typically have a parallax setting of either 100 yards to out maybe 125 or 150 yards. For a lot of the scopes that have either the adjustable objective or the side side focus, side parallax, a lot of those, the minimum yardage that the scope will actually be at full power and still be um, parallax free, on a lot of those it's 50 yards. Well, if you're out squirrel hunting, you're probably not shooting squirrels, in trees, you know, in tree, off of a tree limb 50 yards away, you're probably shooting closer to 20, 25 yards, maybe 30 yards away, depending on where you hunt. So finding a rifle scope that has an adjustable objective or side focus that will will be parallax free at 25 yards or less, that is a very desirable trait for a scope. If you can find that scope that also has a very broad adjustment range, now you can shoot those targets that are up close and then you can dial the elevation for a really long shot. And not only can you do that, but with a lot of your higher end, um, again, tactical type scopes, not only can you dial that elevation but you can trust that when you dial 18 mils your next round is going to be on target if you miss it's not because your scope didn't move 18 mils it moved 15 mils or it moved 22 mils The scopes will track properly now every scope has a little bit of a variance in it and from what i understand those variances uh, exist not only in your lower cost scopes but they also exist uh, to a certain extent in, in your upper echelon scopes, uh, those made by Nightforce, Force, uh, Schmidt and Bender. Those are two that come to mind, Collis, Swarovski. There's also, you know, a, a small variance with those. But one of the things that when you're spending a lot more on a rifle scope, and from what I see, rimfire shooters are spending more now on optics and on ammunition than they ever have before. But when you're spending that money, you're buying a scope that is going to do everything you want on that rimfire, and if something were to happen to the scope that's on your centerfire, you could take that scope off your rimfire, put it on the centerfire, and never miss a beat. An example that uh, uh, I've had great success with When I bought my voodoo, I wanted to be able to zero that scope at no less than 25 yards. And I wanted to be able to shoot that rifle as far as I possibly could by maxing out the elevation and being able to not hold over, not use uh, a hope and a prayer and you know an aiming point somewhere way past the target but to actually be able to put the crosshairs on a target at 25 yards and then to be able to take that same scope and you know crank in the elevation and max out that effective range i happen to have a a schmidt Bender 5 to 25 pm2 which I feel is one of the best uh, rifle scopes in the world. I happened to have one of those scopes on another rifle, and I decided to give it a shot. I took my Voodoo, and when it was built, I asked them to put a 30 MOA rail on that rifle. And then when I went to mount the scope, I had uh, purchased a 30 MOA spur mount which would sit on top of the 30 MOA rail from Voodoo. So now I have 60 MOA of cant or angle built into my rail and mount. Well, that Schmidt and Bender has, uh, if I remember correctly, about 28 mils, 26 to 28 mils of elevation that, uh, uh, you know, the travel. Um, And so when I mounted that scope, what I figured out was that at 25 yards, that scope was completely bottomed out. So literally with the scope completely bottomed out, I was maybe almost a quarter of an inch high at 25 yards. So very, very close to being dead on at 25 yards. And then I had the complete adjustment range of that scope available, which at my elevation, shooting my voodoo uh, with Lapua X ammunition, means I can dial that scope out to almost 500 yards. And that's just holding the crosshairs on the target. That's not taking advantage of the rest of the reticle below, uh, which would get me out um, much further. And I see more and more shooters adopting the same philosophy. Um, I'm sure that if you've been around the shooting world any time at all, I'm sure you've heard the, the phrase buy once, cry once. And uh, I, I used to think that was sort of a silly uh, comment. And really, I, I felt like it was something, you know, a comment that people would make just to kind of tick off um, somebody who couldn't necessarily maybe afford to buy better equipment. And it was almost, I felt, frankly, when I was a lot younger, I used to think that that the people who said that were really just doing it to show off. Just, you know, kind of rubbing it in my face or someone else's face that, well, if you made more money or if you could, you know, if you'd spend more money, you'd get better equipment. And I didn't understand it fully until I went the route of buying inexpensive rifles. and. um Frankly, filtering through a lot of uh, inexpensive scopes, and then in addition to the inexpensive rifles and the inexpensive scopes, uh, I was shooting cheaper ammo, and just not really getting the results that I wanted. And so, I would buy a rifle, it didn't shoot as well as I thought it should, so I would get a new rifle. And that one didn't shoot as well as I thought it would, so I would get another rifle. And, you know, I did this a lot, and I see shooters do it a lot, even today. And looking back at it now, I'm really glad that I've had that experience because I can, can help hopefully save um, a lot of friends and, and other people. I can at least give them the benefit of my experience, which was, you know, buying those inexpensive, um, not so much the rifles in some cases as it was the inexpensive scopes that seemed to have a lot of bells and whistles, so to speak, uh, for the price. So in my mind, that meant I was getting a a fabulous deal on a rifle or a rifle scope um, and not understanding that. You know, there's a reason why the cost of those ended up being what it is um, because it just didn't like, it just didn't have that quality components in it. So moving over to being, being at a point where finding better equipment and realizing, oh my goodness, when I go to adjust the scope two minutes or two mils and the crosshairs actually move the correct distance and there's no need to take a pocket knife and tap the turrets. It's like, Oh my gosh, this is a game changer. This is amazing. Where's this been all my life. And the fact that I can take a scope that is maybe has a maximum power of 25 uh, or maybe 35 power. And I can take that scope and have it at full magnification and be completely in focus on a target at 20 yards away or 25 yards away, that is an absolute game changer to not have to worry about backing down the power to make or bring something in focus to the point that I can't see that tiny little target I'm shooting at. Makes all the difference in the world and really opens your eyes to a lot of different options that are available. Now, the biggest thing that we see um, as far as topics of conversation is people are always asking, What scope should I buy for this? What scope should I buy for that? And when they're asking those questions, it's always with a, a, a qualifier. What's the best scope I can get for $200? What's the best scope I can get for $300? Um, what's the best scope that won't break the bank. And the reality is there's lots of great choices that are out there in all the different price ranges. And the thing about it is, in some of those different price ranges, yep, you're definitely going to, to give up maybe, uh, some, some of the quality coatings on the glass. Maybe you're going to give up a little bit of the clarity, or maybe you're going to pick up some, um, some chromatic aberration uh, um oh my, i can't even say it today chromatic chromatic abrasion where uh, you're getting the the colors fringing around the the outside maybe you're going to give up some of the different reticle choices that are available and maybe you're going to give up a little bit in terms of the the type of adjustments you're looking for maybe you're looking for a scope that has um, mill adjustments on the windage and the elevation because it has a mill dot reticle well the way that some companies cut costs is they may have MOA turrets yet have a mill reticle so let's say for example because you may be asking well, what, what difference does it make what, what, what's the difference between the two well, let me give you a great example let's say you're shooting at a target and it is a um, hundred yards away. Well, if you notice that when you aim at that target, if you have a mill dot reticle and you figure out that you are just in shooting the target, you see it's low and to the right. And that target is, uh, let's just say for easy, you know, easy math and, Let's hope that today I'm, my math is is straight. But let's say, for example, that at 100 yards, your bullet impacts two inch or two mils low and 1.5 or one and a half mils to the right. Okay, and you're looking at this on your scope, and that's what you're getting. You see that. Um, you know, based off of what the reticle is is telling you, you see that it should be, um, you know, two mils low and one and a half mils to the right. Well, if that's true, again, this is all according to your crosshair or your, your reticle, then what you have there. Is when you go to um, to adjust it now you've got to do some math you've got to figure out now wait a minute if it's two mils low but my turrets are actually in MOA how far off am I well ultimately what that's going to equate to it's six and three-quarters MOA see so, you, so you're going to have to adjust your turrets because let's say for example that your scope is a typical scope that has quarter inch uh, clicks quarter inch adjustments it's not quarter inch it's a habit that i have of saying that but it's quarter moa well some scopes are actually quarter inch instead of quarter moa and at at the distances you're shooting 22s a lot of people will say it doesn't matter but if you're going to stretch it out to the extreme limits four, five, six, hundred yards, the difference between quarter MOA and quarter inch does matter. But in this particular case, let's say that it's quarter inch uh, adjustments or a quarter, well, let's call it the quarter MOA, okay? So two mils at 100 yards, that's equal to 6.75 MOA. What that means is if you have quarter MOA adjustments on your scope, you're going to have to move that scope four clicks for one inch so four times six now you're at 24 clicks three more to get to um to get to that 6.75 so now it's 27 clicks to move two mils and then you've got to do the similar math to bring that that impact that point of impact left well If you had a scope with a mill reticle and it had mill adjustments on your turret, you could simply look up to your turret and move it up two mills and you've you've accomplished the exact same thing. And you've been able to do it quite a bit quicker uh, just from the standpoint that you're not having to do math. And um, while some people say math is hard, others will tell you it's not hard, but whether you think it's hard or not, why make, them, or why make yourself have to sit there and, and do the calculations to figure out is two mils 6.25, 6.75? Is it eight something? You know, why do that? Why not just have a scope? And whether you want to shoot with MOA adjustments and an MOA reticle, or you want to use mill adjustments and a mill reticle, it makes no difference. It really comes down to what you prefer and what you understand. But most importantly, make sure that the turrets match your reticle. Don't have an MOA uh, set of turrets on a scope that has mill adjustment. Now, I don't think you're going to have mill adjustments. Uh, I haven't seen a scope with mill adjustments uh, on the turrets and MOA uh, reticle, but hey, it probably exists. So I'm just telling you. Keep that in mind when you're making a purchase. Now, the last thing, talking about scopes and optics in general, is a piece of advice I try to give anyone who asks me, and I seem to get this question a lot. Pick the best scope that you can afford, but don't go out and do something crazy. I mean, if you can... If, if all you can afford is a $500 or a $300 scope, I'm not telling you to go out and spend $3,000 on a Night Force or a Schmidt and Bender or a Collis. I'm not saying do that. But what I am saying, though, is pick the best scope that you can afford and buy it. Because we're in a golden age when it comes to rimfire shooting, and the last thing in the world that you want to do is to go cheap on a scope and then have to replace it time and time again when you can spend a little bit more money and get a much higher quality scope that you're going to be able to shoot on rifle after rifle for years. And you're not going to have to worry about the adjustments uh, no longer working or the film Um, that's on the lenses peeling off. Now, here's the thing. All of your quality manufacturers, they're going to stand behind their product. And if you have those things happen, yep, you can send them in and get that that scope repaired or replaced. But the better optic you buy, the lower your chances are of having to, to do that very thing. So, going back to the original topic of conversation, whenever you're buying a scope for your rifle, there's lots of things you can do. You can match that scope to the rifle. If you have a lightweight rifle and you want a lightweight scope, there's great options out there. If you have a heavy rifle that you're going to shoot from a bench or shoot prone and you don't really care about the weight, trust me, there's some big heavy scopes that are out there. But whatever scope you choose to put on your rifle, Try to get a scope that has a ton of adjustment available because you may not care much about shooting long range right now, but six months from now you may. Two years from now you may. And if given the choice between an optic that has 20 mils or 20 MO, or I'm sorry, 20, uh, let's just say for example, 20 mils or 28 mils there's gonna be a little bit of difference in price but if you can afford it go that route if you have a, a chance to pick up a scope that has 60 moa of adjustment and you can pay a few dollars more and get the same scope or similar scope with 80 moa of adjustment i'm a big fan let's do that always give yourself the benefit of having a little bit more now one thing i didn't talk about very much. Actually, didn't talk about it at all, but I will touch on it just a little bit. Is I do have a lot of people now who will ask, Chris, what's this FFP and SFP that I see mentioned on so many scopes now? What's that stand for? What's that mean? And basically, um, it's it's very simple. That FFP, that's front focal plane. SFP, that second focal plane. And what that means to you is a second focal plane scope which is what a majority of shooters my age and older learned to shoot with, the reticle always looks the same. Regardless of the magnification on the scope, the crosshairs never get bigger. They don't get smaller. They don't change in relative size. They're always the same. That's what most people tend, or have learned to shoot on, and there's nothing wrong with those scopes for a lot of what, uh, the shooting that we do today. If you are someone that's uh, competing or someone who prefers consistency across the board, as far as uh, the holds and different things like that, a first focal plane scope may be a much better fit for you. On a first focal plane scope, and let's use the Schmidt Bender that I mentioned before. The magnification range goes from five power all the way up to 25 power. On five power, the reticle looks very small when I'm looking through that scope. But you can still see distinct marks for all the different elevation and windage marks on the reticle themselves or itself. As I increase that power magnification from 5 up to 6, 8, 10, 15, all the way up to 25, the reticle gets larger in In the scope as I'm looking through it, it looks much bigger. The the thing that uh, a first focal plane does for you, though, is at any power, whether it's five power all the way up to 25 power, if I'm making that same 100-yard shot and I see that the bullet impacts two inches or two uh, mils low, guess what? It's two mils low at five power it's still going to be two mils low at 25 power. On a second focal plane scope, if it happens to have a mil dot type reticle, if the magnification range is the same, five to 25, on five power, that bullet may look like it is impacting four or five or maybe even six mils low because on a second focal plane scope, most of them are only designed for the mill adjustments, or, or even if they're MOA adjustments, they're designed for those adjustments to be accurate at whatever the maximum magnification of the scope is. So if you happen to be shooting at a, um, a range or, or in a match, where you need lower magnification and a lot of times that could be for a mirage it's really really hot and the mirage is terrible and so you're having to back the power on your scope down so that um, you're not having or experiencing quite the effects of the mirage or something like that a first focal plane scope is still going to tell you where your impacts are hitting and allow you to make adjustments on the fly with a second focal plane scope you can still do that it's just going to be a bit more difficult because you're what you're actually seeing as far as impacts that's not going to be exactly uh, the same or it's not going to be exactly what you think it is and a lot of shooters do just fine with second uh, focal plane scopes uh, they've spent enough time with it to know that if you if the scope is at 10 power at you know 228 yards or 225 yards maybe um this is where the the bullet actually um is impacting it's not to say that that's that's 100 across the board But like i said i see people shoot second focal plane scopes without any issues um, especially if you're shooting at static ranges you're always shooting at the same distance you know you're uh, as a great example uh, like some of the local matches I shoot in. I shoot in some matches where the um, the targets are at 80 yards. Uh, these are uh, chicken silhouettes. We shoot uh, chickens at 80 yards, pigs at 120 yards, the turkeys are at 154 yards, and then the rams, they're at 200 yards those targets aren't moving they're at the same distance every single match so it's no big deal i see another match that i shoot in Um, they shoot 40 yards 50 yards 82 yards 100 yards 100 typically 164 to 166 depending on where the targets are placed at any particular match and then the rams can be anywhere from, I've seen them as close as 200 as far as 205 to 207 yards, but it's still right there in that ballpark. So, you know, a lot of these matches that I shoot locally are designed more around some shooting off of a bench, a little bit of offhand. Uh, Unfortunately, in my area right now, we don't have any NRL type matches. Um, I know there's lots of us who are trying to make that happen, but so far we haven't been successful. And so once those types of matches come into play, you know, there'll be a lot more variance as well, but spent about an hour talking about this. And, um, I, I know for some folks, it's beating a dead horse for others. Um, it's just, it is what it is, but it really is a big deal to me because, Once I started spending a little bit more money on better scopes, I saw a a dramatic increase in not only the enjoyment that I get out of shooting, but how competitive I am in shooting the matches. And most importantly, um, just, just the trust factor of knowing that when I go to make an adjustment now, that scope's going to move exactly where I need it to be. And, and really where that comes into play, talking about some of the matches that I shoot is if I'm transitioning from shooting chickens at 80 yards out to Rams at 200, I know I can dial in the elevation on my scope and I'm going to cut down on the number of rounds that I need to shoot at a cider target. I'm only going to shoot two or three, maybe five if it's really windy. But I don't have to worry about the elevation being on. I have to worry about what's happening with the wind. I see some shooters in those same matches who are shooting 20, 30 rounds or more um, trying to do the exact same thing. They're trying to get the elevation right first. Then they're fighting with the wind. And that's doing two different things. A, they're getting to shoot a lot, which I truly enjoy. I mean, I, I, that's that's a big part of the reason I enjoy shooting these matches. but a lot of those shooters are shooting some expensive ammo. It's ten, twelve, fifteen dollars a box, and while that may not be expensive to some, to other people they can't imagine paying ten dollars for a box of fifty rounds of twenty-two long rifle because they can go to Walmart and buy fifty fifty rounds for a dollar and ninety-five cents or a dollar ninety-nine or whatever Walmart's pricing is. So they're shooting in some cases a half a box of ammunition or more just to try to get on target, and then they're still going to have to shoot their their targets. And when you're shooting those targets in our matches, you only have 10 minutes. Well, if they're shooting and adjusting and shooting and adjusting and shooting and adjusting, they may burn five, six, maybe even seven minutes or more just trying to get the scope where it needs to be so they can turn around and shoot those 10 targets for score. And... You know, that's uh that's one of those things that it doesn't sound like it's that big of a deal, but when you know you're running out of time, you tend to rush, and when you rush, you tend to make mistakes. And uh, I- I've seen some folks struggle with that at times. And uh to make matters worse, this is a match that they shoot routinely, but still, you know, maybe the scope just the tracking isn't quite what it should be. Um, or the conditions are totally different and and they're just having a real challenge with it. So whenever you're out you know, looking to, to put an optic, a you know, new scope on your rifle, uh, or le- you're looking to upgrade, I hope that the info I've, I've talked about here, I hope it can help you some, help you in terms of um, deciding what's, what's a better fit for you and your rifle, uh, what's a better fit for you and your rifle and your budget. Um, but most importantly, Going back to something I've said, I think several times now, you don't have to go out and spend $3,000 or $3,500 on a scope. There's lots of really good scopes in lower price ranges, but whatever you get, get a scope that's going to have the features that you want, the, the features that are going to help you enjoy shooting the most. Don't, don't handicap yourself with getting a scope that's going to limit your capabilities. It's going to limit what magnification range you can use at the closer targets. It's going to limit how far you can shoot out without having to hold over targets because it doesn't have enough elevation. It's not necessarily getting the best bang for the buck because let's face it, whether it's a $30 scope or a $3,500 scope, we all want the best bang for the buck but it's getting the best scope with the most features for you and with the type of shooting you want to do. So that's it for this week's Rimfire Tactical Podcast. Keep shooting and remember, it's not just a 22.